Thanks for tuning in to VSB After the Bell. I'm your host, Gianna Chow. VSB, otherwise known as the Vancouver School Board, is located on the unceded traditional lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. This month on the podcast, we take you into the world of school board finances and uncover the complexities involved in managing budgets for our educational institution. School boards across North America are responsible for making critical financial decisions that impact the quality of education our children receive, from hiring teachers and staff to investing in technology and resources. With so much at stake, it's important that we understand how these decisions are made and how school boards finances are operated. Join us as we speak with David Green, VSB Secretary-Treasurer, who is essentially our Chief Financial Officer, to learn more about intricacies of school board finances. We'll explore the budgeting process, how funds are allocated, strategies for ensuring sustainability, and how stakeholders, staff, and caregivers can get involved in the decision-making process. Welcome, David. Thank you. Uh, so I guess from a first general question, can you explain what is the district's budget process and how does it all work? The district is responsible annually to produce a budget for the upcoming school year uh, by the end of June of any calendar year. So, for example, we're working today on the development of the budget for 2023-2024 school year. And uh, we have to have that approved and submitted and approved to the uh, Ministry of Education and Child Care by June 30th. So why would you submit that to the ministry? Is it because they are our primary funders? That's correct. Under the School Act, we are required to you know, submit the budget to the minister every year. Uh, they are the, the ministry is the primary funder of school districts in the province. And uh, we get the majority of our funding in our budget from the Ministry of Education. Also, I know the ministry funds the school district based on the number of students in that district. So the more students you have, the more funding the district receives. That's correct. There's a, um, a very detailed funding formula that the ministry uses to allocate money to school districts. If students have identified special needs, there's, there's supplemental funding related to that. There's also supplemental funding related to uh, indigenous students, uh, students who require English language learning, and also adult students and, and distributed learning students, so distance learning students who, who learn online. And then there's other supplements in the, in the funding formula also relating to um, geographic factors, climate factors, you know, across the province, um, and also related to the differentiation between teacher salaries from district to district. So it's a very complicated, complex formula. But it's, it's how school districts get most of the funding that they have to operate every year. Does the formula also uh, consider the facilities, the age of buildings, um, the maintenance of buildings? Uh, no, not really. The, um, the school districts do get an annual facilities grant that is intended to to do repairs and maintenance on on buildings such as um, you know safety improvements or accessibility improvements, um, repairs to roofing. Mm -hmm. 
those sorts of things. Um, anything beyond that is is covered covered off under the what the ministry has a capital program also for providing money for new schools, expansions of schools, seismic upgrades of schools. And that sort of thing. So capital programs are like the big renovation or the big, big projects. And then the facilities grant can cover some of the maintenance that is done on the day to day um, for our facilities. Uh, That's correct. So then what is the district's budget? How much money do we get and how much money do we spend usually? Well, we just finished the amended annual budget for this school year. That's 2022 then? 2022, 2023. Mm-hmm. And um, in total, our district budget, amended budget, was $692 million. And of that amount, um, about $570 million relates to the operating fund. And then we have a series of special purpose funds, which also uh, have about, I think it's um, $85 million. And, um, and then there's also the capital fund. So we have three funds that comprise our budget. And um, most people think of our budget as just the operating fund, which is obviously the main fund that we use to you know, provide staffing and resources to our schools. Uh, special purpose funds are more along the lines of um, <clears throat> require you know special reporting, or they're they're meant for a specific purpose. For example, people might refer to things like Community Link, you know, which provides food programs and support programs for students in schools. But that's it's a special purpose fund. And uh, there's also the teachers would be familiar with the classroom enhancement fund, which was put in place in 2017 to address class composition and class size issues. Uh, that's also a special purpose fund. So we have to account for these funds separately, but in total they comprise the you know the total budget that we have every year. So over six hundred million, almost seven hundred million in terms of a budget. But I understand we're still in a structural budget deficit. How how does that even happen? How does that work? Can you explain what does it mean? Uh, sure. The uh, a structural deficit in a budget is, is essentially a situation where over time you have you've had more expenses than you've had uh, funding coming in. Um, in any given year, you could have a deficit where one year you might have you know X amount of funding and then you have more expenses, so you have a deficit. But over time, if that if that exists over time, then you have a what's called a structural deficit, and um, it relates to the fact that in 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 Vancouver it relates to, to many factors, but also the fact that you know we have older buildings that uh, require maintenance. We've had declining enrollment for the last um, number of years. It's also evidenced by the fact that you know when we when we look at our budget, we we always end up having to use a prior year surplus to balance the budget, and um, so it also relates to things like um, if we have programs that don't have a funding source, or we're, 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 or we're trying to provide services to students that don't have a funding, we don't have a funding source to support that service. Those are costs that relate to. Um, contribute to the structural deficit. So what you're saying is um, we have been spending more 
than we quote unquote earn, or in our case, get funded for. And we've been balancing our budget uh, using prior year surplus. So we're essentially dipping into our savings account and using that savings to make sure we net out um, every year so we're not in a deficit. But then over time, how does that work as we spend from our savings and we don't put back into our savings? What will that mean for the district? I, I think that's why you just said was a good, good analogy, because if you look at it as, as a household budget, you will see, you know, if you if you're taking in, if you only earn so much money and you spend more money than you earn, then you obviously have to find that extra money somewhere else. And if you have a savings account, then yes, you can, you know, use your savings to get by. Um, but after a while, if your savings account runs out and you don't have enough income or earnings coming in to cover off your expenses, you either have to reduce your expenses, find more funding, or end up in a deficit situation. Mm-hmm. So I guess that leads to the obvious question is, how do you get out of a structural deficit? We, um, you know, we've been talking about the structural deficit here for the last, you know, four or five years. And uh, we've been fortunate enough to, you know, be able to continue to use surpluses to help us out to balance our budget. Um, but the reality is that um, it's it still exists. And... Um, it led the board last year, the previous Board of Education, to actually pass a motion uh, to ask staff to develop uh, structural deficit reduction strategies to be included in the budget development process. We're in the process of doing that and identifying what, what, certain, what certain things we can do to, um, to address the structural deficit. Most of those strategies would, would involve things like um, you know, trying to be more efficient, in allocating resources. The reality is we do have to find efficiencies in how we spend the money. In the absence of additional funding, then that's going to be a bit of a challenge. But when people hear about efficiencies, they right away think about cuts to positions or programs. What does that mean for the district when you talk about reduction strategies or ideas on how to save so we're not constantly in this structural deficit? It's not a matter of, you know, looking at cutting. We're not talking really about cutting right now. We need to actually look at um, and realize, for example, that we, we spend money in certain areas that obviously are contributing to the structural deficit. In that long-range facilities plan, it's, it's clearly stated that this district spends about 7 or $8 million a year more on operations and maintenance than uh, other lower mainland districts. And Why is that? But that obviously relates to the fact that we have, you know, older buildings. We have the average age of our buildings is over 70 years of age and they have old systems and that sort of thing. And we have to, you know, spend a lot of money, um, you know, maintaining those buildings and causing, you know, making repairs. And it's, it's taking money that otherwise could go to programs for students and being spent in a different way. And that's what I refer to as efficiencies, right? So we could figure out some way to be more efficient in how we maintain our buildings. Um, then, 
you know, that would that would free up resources to support students in schools. And am I right to say that Vancouver is in a unique situation because the school district is older than some of the other districts? And, you know, a lot of our schools have been around for a lot longer. I think that's a fair statement. I mean, here in Vancouver, I probably have some of the oldest schools in the province. Um, certainly there's other other older schools around in in the lower mainland, also some on the island too, but um, and it's not easy to you know, when you look at trying to be more efficient in how you maintain your buildings. The reality is, you have an old school and you have to maintain it um, because you need, you know you need that school to to um, provide programs for students. But I think we have a unique challenge here because of the number of schools that we have that are old. Mm. Right. We have, what is it, over, uh, is it 108 schools that we, we look after? We have 110 schools that we look after. Um, the average age is over 70 years of age. Um, so going back to the budget conversation, uh you know, you said efficiencies, you're looking at facilities and or buildings in terms of uh, trying to find efficiencies. Are you going to try and find efficiencies um, around special programs like music or arts? I mean, typically when someone hears about uh, there's a structure, there's a deficit, the first thing to get cut, it seems to be those programs such as music and art and th- those elective programs that children really look forward to? Now, our priority is to continue those programs, as we know how important it is to develop well-rounded students. And we actually have not cut any music or arts programs in my time as Secretary-Treasurer. But in terms of finding efficiencies, for example, we could look at um, some of our buildings. Um, Because we've had a lot of declining enrollment over the last number of years, we do have excess capacity in some of our school buildings. And we could look at situations where we could relocate an existing program that may be in a smaller building into, say, a nearby larger school where, where capacity exists. Right, because I think we often forget that running a whole separate building on its own actually does cost quite a bit because, like, for instance, the heat, the electricity, uh, you know, the regular ground work that needs to occur, all those can add up. And if you have so many sites... Uh, they can add up quickly too. I think. I think in 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 total. I think the in order to get out of the structural deficit, I think the district. You know, you make a good point. The district needs to look at um, investing money in programs as opposed to investing money in buildings, because right now, because of the structural deficit. In my opinion, programs are suffering a little bit in this district, mm-hmm. particularly um, programs for, you know, the educational program for secondary students, for example. So when you say investing in programs, do you mean investing in staffing to ensure those programs can continue to run? Or I'm, Yeah, I'm talking about investing in, in staffing and resources to allow for uh, and programs to be delivered in a more efficient way. Um, like when it, when I talk about secondary students, I mean, you know, we have we have eighteen secondary schools in in the district, and most of them are operating 
with student enrollments that are less than their physical capacity to house students. And as a result of that, the, um, the students in those schools are not being, they don't have the advantage of ha having a full program of courses that they can look at in terms of electives and specialties like science courses and that sort of thing. Um, we did have a preferred school size study done a, um, a couple of years ago in relation to our long range facilities plan. And that, you know, that recommended that, you know, a preferred size for a secondary school should be maybe 15 to 1700 students. We have, you know, several secondary schools that operate with a lot less students. And the whole idea of offering a full program for, st for secondary students is, is so that they're, they're exposed to every opportunity they can have for their educational experience. So what you're telling me here is having a larger school community, having a larger student population is actually more beneficial for the students because I can say as a parent, you know, you always imagine actually having a more intimate school is better because you build that community, you build those connections, you're not in a huge environment where it can get scary for kids sometimes. I think that there's always an opportunity and a, and a need to have, you know, programs that, is, that address specific needs of students. But I think generally, for the vast majority of students, um, I think that it's been my experience, and I'm not an educator, but it's been my experience in, in, in 21 years as a secretary treasurer that um, students, student populations that are larger are they offer more advantage to to the students they have um, better programming uh, more resources you know like for example um, I can remember in in uh, other districts I worked in where um, you know schools were closed and there was a lot of opposition to a, a school being closed. But the student population was, you know, relocated to a larger school. And after a year or two, people would come back and say, oh, wow, I didn't know my child was didn't have those advantages when they were in the other school. Like now they have a library, they have a gym, they have this and they have that. And um, so, yeah, there's a real advantage to having larger student populations. But, you know, recognizing also that. Some students do need the, the more intimate, the more supportive environment in order to, to thrive and succeed. So. so it's balancing the two types. And uh, when you say uh, more resources for students in a larger school, um, I'm thinking about, for instance, like a woodworking class or a metalworks class that wouldn't be offered at a smaller school because one, there's no space and two, you know, there's not enough students to, to enroll in that. So when you offer at a, at a bigger high school with more students, all those students at that high school would have access to that specialized class that they wouldn't have at a smaller secondary school. That's that's true. And also, I, 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 I there's probably programs and and in some of our secondary schools right now that haven't operated because they don't have enough students to mm. to support the program. So, okay, we talked about the, the structural deficit. Um, then how does a district prioritize spending? Yeah, so the, the majority of our budget is obviously, 
human related. It's staffing and benefits. Um, like 90% of our budget every year is, is related to um, staffing and, and, and employee benefits uh, for those people. So, you know, the, the, the most significant component of, of, of our salaries is obviously our teachers. I mean, in the amended budget for this year in the operating fund, there's like almost a quarter billion dollars, $250 million of teacher salaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, we have educational assistants, we have support staff, principals and vice principals. And only about, you know, nine or 10 percent of our budget is actually spent on services and supplies like things like, you know, general services, insurance, professional development, student transportation, utilities and those sorts of things. It's it's a difficult question to answer in terms of how do we allocate our money, because. A lot of it is just allocated because we have staffing formulas that we need to have in place to uh, to staff put teachers and, and educational assistants in schools. Right. That, that makes sense, too, because those are the people teaching our students. So we're investing most of our money in the products and the humans and in, in the teachers and the educators that are actually delivering the service, which is education, instruction to students. So then how do you involve stakeholders or how do you involve the school community, such as students, families, teachers um, in the budgeting process? You know, it's important to have their voices heard. Uh, How do you include them in the decision making around finances for the school district? So we have um, several ways to involve our families and our stakeholders and the general community, general community members in, in the process. We have, um, we have every year we start looking at the amended budget in the fall of the year. So we have finance committee meetings where um, we, know we present information about the amended budget and then you know, trustees are at those meetings, but also stakeholders, and they're able to offer suggestions and comments and that sort of thing. Um, as we go through the actual development of the budget for the for the next, for the upcoming school year, uh, we will then have um, more meetings with stakeholder groups. We'll have a we we have an annual survey that we put out. Uh, we have committee. We have um, more finance committee meetings. And, but we also have, throughout the budget development process, um, what we call committees of the whole with the board, uh, where the board invites the public, anybody in the public who wants to actually come and make a comment about the budget or a suggestion or receive, receive submissions. Uh, they'll, we'll have meetings where you know, the board will engage you know, directly with the public about um, what they might want to see in the budget. So we have, you know, two or three of those every budget development season. So, And then the next committee of the whole is going to, there's two in April and the public can sign up on um, our website at vsb.bc.ca. Uh, I also know the survey was public and uh, it's open to all families in the school district, including students and, and their caregivers. That's correct. Those meetings are on... Um 
April 19th and April 24th. Well, David, thank you for providing valuable insights and knowledge about school board finances. Whether you're a concerned family member, a worker in the education system, or a community member interested in improving our schools, we can all work together to create a better educational system for our children. Thank you for having me. We have a reoccurring segment on the show called Matter of the Month, where we address the most talked about topics. For this month, we talk about International Women's Day, a global day celebrating the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. It's celebrated on March 8th every year and provides an opportunity to raise awareness about the ongoing struggles and challenges that women face in achieving gender equality. It's important because it's a time to reflect on progress made, to call for change, and to celebrate the achievements of women worldwide. In celebration of International Women's Day, we speak to Vice Chair Preeti Ferdkot, the first female and Sikh trustee elected to the Vancouver School Board. Welcome, Vice Chair Ferdkot. Thank you. Preeti, what does it mean to you to be the first female and Sikh trustee? Thank you for having me here. And I am very honored to be the first Sikh female trustee. I, I take pride in promoting diversity and inclusion, specifically in the school district leadership roles. I hope this serves as an inspiration for many other multicultural women who have the desire to promote great representation and inclusivity. Trustee is an interesting role. Why did you want to become a trustee and what inspired you? Um, community service is something that I've always been interested in. I've been an advocate for my community for over 12 years, and uh, I've worked in many other different organizations in the past, like Success, helping many other people, uh, with whether it's settling down in Canada or, um, you know, any other issues that they're having in the community. Being a parent of three, I have uh, experienced actually many issues uh, that children and parents face in the school system. I believe that our community in particular, uh, the young people who are the future, um, will benefit most if we are, as a parent, are active and being uh, be a positive part of the change that we want to see. So I, I assume that getting here, you know, wasn't easy. There must have been challenges. Can you walk us through some of these challenges that you've had to experience yourself and maybe um, elaborate on how can we all work together to create a more inclusive and equitable society? Um I have faced many challenges. Uh, one of my biggest challenge was actually um, accommodating my family life with the campaigning and political life. Um, I was unable to spend a lot of time with my loved ones um, and with door knocking and attending a lot of events. I didn't have much time. Also, um, many times I was the only woman in the room with all male being there. So um, in the beginning, that was kind of challenging for me, just, um, you know, feeling insecure being the only woman in the room. But after a while, um, you know, you you get used to it and, uh, you know, your voice matters and you, you get up, you speak up. And, um, you know, I overcome that challenge as well. Yeah, it definitely takes a lot of courage um, to 
be to be standing out in the room. Um, but hopefully, as more and more females get in these leadership roles, there will be more of a balance in, in gender equality in the room. So you spoke a bit about trying to balance that family and um, political community involvement as well as work. Uh, can you maybe let listeners know how do you balance it all? You know, I'm also a working mom. It's it's tough when you have when you have needs at home, but also needs at work and in the community as well. Um, it can be very demanding role. Um, it actually requires a lot of uh, time commitment, especially for those who are balancing work, family and community involvement. Um, I actually prioritize everything. So if I have to meal prep for my kids, I do a meal prep for the whole week right, as yes. to what needs to be done. I have a calendar. I, I set realistic expectations out of myself. There are a lot of events that I am not able to attend at times. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's a part of your life that you can attend something and you can't, cannot attend some, some of them, which is fine. So you got to prioritize what's more important. Uh, your responsibilities, you're communicating with your family members. So my husband had to step up mm -hmm. and do a lot of work uh, while I was stepping into the trustee role. Um, I had to take a lot of help from my parents, um, taking care of my kids or taking them to school. So, you know, balancing is all I can say at this moment um, and communication with your colleagues, whether it's your family member or your community organizations. Yeah, I, I would say it takes a village to raise a child. And if you have three, then definitely that's no small feat. Um, and, you know, with every leader behind every leader, there's always we used to say there's always a supportive wife. But now in your case, there is a supportive husband behind helping you with all of this. For sure. What are some of the most rewarding experiences that you have had as a trustee and what keeps you motivated in this role? Um, the most rewarding experience I have uh, experienced as a trustee is, um, you know, making a difference, positive difference in the community. I can already see that many people are looking up to me uh, for a lot of different changes or a lot of different things that they are having struggles with in the past. Um, also, a sense of fulfillment that comes from knowing that my the decision that you're taking as a board have made a positive impact on someone's life. I have many parents reaching out to me on a regular basis through emails or phone calls, thanking me on small little things that they thought they weren't able to accomplish while just raising their concerns to the, um, you know, to the VSB. But um, when they bring up those issues to me, I actually bring the bring them up to the VSB staff and they've been taken care of very well. So um, I believe that, um, you know, making a positive difference in someone's life is actually keeps me going, keeps me motivated. And also, um, you know, the society, they're looking up to you. Your kids are looking up to you, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, Especially the young model. girls when you go up to a school and you speak on something. Those young girls, it, it gives them um, a sense of fulfillment that, oh, you know, if this person can do it, I can do it. So uh, I'm no... I'm not a hero or anything. I just, I'm just a normal person and they look at me as a normal person and anything is achievable. So, 
Yeah, being an example for sure. And I think being an example as a minority, as a person of color shows um, young people that it can be achieved and having more diversity, um, gender or race is important to see uh, as you as you said, example for our younger generation. So on that note, then what advice would you give to other women who are interested in becoming a trustee or leaders in their community? All I want to say is to all the young girls, um, doesn't matter where, what, whatever your background is, um, just believe in yourself and your abilities. Um, don't be afraid to speak up and share your ideas, even if you're the only woman in the room. Um, a lot of young girls, they are very positive till the age of 10. And after uh, 10 years old, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the society or the community or their, you know, schoolmates, um, they, they tend to think that some things that they used to think as a little kid is not possible anymore. I just want them to um, think that their perspective and their experience are more valuable and the contribution they're going to make uh, to the society, to the community um, can make a difference. So, you know, just believe in yourself and uh, keep your head up. A hundred percent. There's still a long way to go to achieve gender equality. Women continue to face discrimination, violence, and unequal pay in many parts of the world. We need to challenge gender stereotypes, create policies that promote gender equality, and ensure that women have access to education, healthcare, and economic opportunities. We also need to continue to encourage men and boys to be our allies in the fight for gender equality, as they have an important role to play in creating a more equitable world. International Women's Day is not just a day to celebrate women's achievements, but but it's also an opportunity to raise awareness about the ongoing struggles that women face. It's important to remember that gender inequality affects everyone, and we all have a role to play in creating a more equitable world. Preeti, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to VSB After the Bell. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. Your feedback helps us improve and create more content that you'll like. Remember, we release episodes monthly and on the last Thursday of the month. We'll catch up with you then. VSB After the Bell, produced by the VSB Communications Department. Special thanks to music teacher Mr. Bonnell and Nightingale Elementary students for the original theme song. Keep up to date with district news. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at VSB39 or Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Vancouver School Board. And don't forget to subscribe to VSB After the Bell on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. After the bell. After the bell. After the bell. After the bell. With the